Can I say this? The podcast by the Dundee Students Free Speech Society. Tonight we have got a pretty exciting talk. So I'm happy to introduce you to Neil Finn, who is a senior lecturer of social anthropology at the University of Edinburgh. And throughout his life, he's been involved in various projects, mostly focusing on happiness. Dr. Thin has been closely enmeshed in free speech and the current view of freedom of expression that is very blatant in academia right now. In particular, and although it is surely a very grim memory, it must be mentioned there was an attempt earlier this year to cancel him by students at the University of Edinburgh. The nature of the attempt seems to have boiled down mostly to his opposition to critical race theory framework. It is ironic that in most of the occasions on which he opposes critical race theory, Neil Finn clearly expresses his desire that one day we will be able to live in a truly post-racial world. He joins us for a conversation about the current social climate in university campuses and the association of moral curiosity with this. After Dr Thin's initial statement, we will have questions from the audience. Questions can be asked via the Q&A option at the top of your screen. Our moderators behind the scenes will be sure to let us know of all of the questions. And now, without any more further delays and hopefully no more technical gremlins, I will leave you with Dr Neil Finn. Hi, everybody. Um, how many have we got? 10, 15 people, something like that. So lovely to see you. Um, I, so my name is Neil Thin. I am an anthropologist. I've been at the University of Edinburgh lecturing 35 years. Uh, and as Kat just told you, most of the recent years, most of the time actually since the millennium, I've been promoting uh, the anthropology and sociology of happiness. Um, and before that, I worked sort of at the other end of the uh, a spectrum on uh, poverty, suffering, human rights abuse uh, in uh, what were then called third world or developing countries working with aid organisations. So although I was a lecturer, I was also working for at least half the year around the world, working with community organisations, trade unions and so on. So around the millennium, I decided to, to kind of reinvent myself uh, as a more aspirational, positive a anthropologist looking at what goes right with society and that's still where I'm at. My, my heart is still in the idea of looking at what goes right with society. But as you see me right now, I'm, I, I've been through a rough few months, to be honest. Um, uh, and so I kind of feeling myself lurching at times towards the misery end of the spectrum again. Uh, and I thank you, Andre and Kat, for inviting me here tonight because it really helps to know that other people around the country and in other countries are noticing some of the bad stuff that's happening in academia and elsewhere at the moment and showing that they have an interest in finding ways out of it. So my mission tonight and for the rest of the coming months is to find positive constructive outcomes from, from what's been a, 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 a pretty rough few months. So I mean assuming that some of you I um, googled my name there's only eight letters and there's only one of me in the world um, so uh, you'd have no trouble finding stuff out about me assuming you some of you gave that a go um, I'm pretty uh, sure that your screen would have looked similar to what mine's screen still looks like six months on from these very short-lived and a uh, um, rather low lowbrow uh, cancellation attempts I'm pretty sure that you will still see my name associated with the names like uh, racist, misogynist, transphobe, bigot. You will see people saying that my lectures were described as traumatizing and triggering. Um, you will see quotes from students saying that they felt unsafe in my virtual presence um, uh, and uh, demanding, not just requesting, demanding uh, that I apologise and or that I should be permanently withdrawn from my role as a, as a lecturer. And that's a role, as I say, that I've performed without trouble for 35 years. So a pretty weird few months. Um, so one thing for tonight, uh, if you want to ask me anything about what went on before those cancellation attempts and what my interpretation of that is, 
yeah, I'll do my absolute best to answer you. I don't want to say anything inflammatory. I'm really trying to let the dust settle on this sorry episode and also to, as I say, to draw out something, some good lessons from it. Um, but I've absolutely nothing to hide and nothing to be shy about. So I, I really don't mind what you want to ask me. I will do my absolute best to answer you. But the other couple of things that I want to do this evening is to engage you in conversation about what can we learn about um, free speech and the regulation of speech more generally, self-regulation and regulation by others. What can we learn from episodes like this that would be constructive if we're going to avoid just um, doing what some of the media do and some people on Twitter do is just saying, oh, here's another awful cancel culture event, isn't it dreadful? and kind of agonizing over it or polemicizing over it. I believe it must be possible to learn something constructive about human relationships and about discourse and so on that we could use to good uh, to, to good effect. And that's my hope in a way. Um, and then the other thing I want to do tonight is kind of to steer some of this conversation beyond the, the 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 free speech rubric. I understand, of course, that this, the, the, the nature of this event is under the rubric of speech, free speech champions. And I'm very, I was very pleased to discover that free speech champions existed as a movement. And I hope if you haven't already joined and signed up that you that you will do and you encourage your friends to do so. So I'm obviously a strong believer in, in free speech, but I just think that there are there are more interesting conversations to be had beyond that basic requirement of free speech that have to do with other more aspirational concepts. And one of those I want to highlight tonight and flag up as a, a rubric that I find useful is the rubric of, um, a, of a moral curiosity. The idea that we are here in an academic environment to be curious about the world, to learn, to learn about what we're curious about, to reflect on why we're curious, to bounce our curiosities off other people and share with them our thoughts on why we're curious, and then to use those conversations to, be, to, to enjoy our curiosity for its own intrinsic value, but also to, um, to try and think different, try and empathize, to try and think differently about the world um, and try to learn from people with radically different, uh, different views. So that's the other conversation that I would like to, um, to have. So, and do, by the way, please feel free to raise a hand and interrupt. I'm going to try to keep this, the introductory bit, fairly, uh, fairly uh, brief, but do feel free to interrupt if I end up saying something you don't understand or going on a bit too much. Right, so just to start on, on messages about free speech, um, I, I think there's two important distinctions that we could make uh, about uh, free speech. One is, um, uh, the distinction that is very familiar to many of you, no doubt, between negative free speech, in other words, the, the, the minimalist and defensive idea that we have the, the freedom not to be censored, the freedom not to be interrupted, the freedom not to be stopped. And on the other side, we have the positive freedom. So that opposition between negative and positive freedom applies, I think, to free speech. And it's more interesting, more aspirational, if you like, to think about positive free speech. How can we use that freedom to speak and how should we use it to make our own lives and those of other people go uh, go better? So I hope this evening, if we don't get too caught up in talking about denunciations and de-platformings, that we'll have some opportunity to talk about what you think of as how, how you think um, uh, the freedom to speak can and should be should be used. Should we use self-censorship? Should we guide our freedom to speech um, in response to what we anticipate about other people's offence taking and so on. Um, there's another distinction I think that's useful, um, which um, I haven't thought about so much before preparing for this evening, but I think is really, the more I think about it, I think it's a really useful distinction. And it's one that apparently if there's any Greek scholars or classic scholars here, you'll probably be familiar with this. Um, in ancient Greece, they used to draw a distinction between uh, uh, forgive my pronunciation, I'm not a Greek scholar, isigoria, which I'm translating roughly as egalitarian free speech. In other words, in, uh, the good society ensuring 
that everyone gets a voice, that everyone gets the chance to, to, to voice, to say what they think, to say what they believe, to voice their opinions. So egalitarian free speech or isegoria, uh, and uh, what I'm going to call libertarian free speech, paresia is what the Greeks called it, which is about... Um, and this is... Hello? Was that an interruption? Oh, did it? I think I think it was on my end because you, you froze. And it was, I was All right. thinking it was on your end, but it was am only by apologies. Am I back in the room again? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I thought you were going to correct my pronunciation of paresia. Oh, I, I, I never do. So I'm, uh, my knowledge of Greek is worse right. than yours. Anyway, so so paresia, as the Greeks called it. Is, is a different take on free speech, which is probably the one that we're most familiar with today, which is the libertarian idea that free speech guarantees the total freedom to say, as the, the Cambridge philosopher Arif Ahmed recently put it in debates at Cambridge, um, to, to say anything you like as long as it's legal, all right? So that's the guarantee of libertarian free uh, speech. Now, so you've got an egalitarian version and you've got a libertarian version. Now, although we do hear a lot nowadays about um, political polarization between egalitarians and libertarians, or between left and right wings, is sometimes put, um, I, I, I personally refuse to be pigeonholed into left or right. I don't see the point of that. I look at each case on its merits, and I show goodwill to to think what I to do what I can to think my way and to help other people think their way towards a better society for everybody. And as, a, as an anthropologist, as a humanist, as an optimist, um, I believe that everybody, really, just about every human being, um, has a significant degree of interest both in equalizing as far as we can within reason and in making our lives as free as they can possibly be. Now, there are limits to both equality and to freedom, but there are values I hope that all of us could sign, sign up to. And so I think if we can remind ourselves when we talk about free speech that both of these versions, the egalitarian version and the libertarian version, have value and are worth considering, we might find much more common ground than we otherwise would. So, for example, um, if we remind ourselves that uh, we're not just talking about total freedom to say anything, we're also talking about making it possible for a wider variety of voices to be heard, that would help us find common ground, for example, between the free speech agenda and the decolonize the curriculum agenda, which in the media you hear a lot about how the decolonizers are, uh, are portrayed, caricatured perhaps as, uh, as authoritarian censors, as left-wing extremists and so on. Well, it needn't be like that at all. I mean, I've, I've been an anthropologist, as I say, for most of my life. Anthropology is all about deparochializing, widening our horizons, decolonizing, um, listening to a great diversity of voices. And these are values that I hope most of us could uh, could respect, provided that that egalitarian free, uh, um, free uh, freeing up of speech is not used to trump libertarian free uh, free speech. And there's one more free speech distinction I think that's worth considering here that kind of overlaps a bit with the other two. Um, and that's the distinction between speaking freely and being listened to. Um, most of the conversation, again, about, uh, about free speech is about people's right to speak freely. But it's kind of irrelevant speaking freely if no one's listening. So we want to be able to speak freely, but we also want other people to listen to us. Now, there's different ways in which you can do that. The best way, obviously, is by using reason and evidence and rhetoric to make your speech so fantastically informative and interesting that other people will want to listen to you. Um, unfortunately, new authoritarians, and there are many of them on campus, um, are, are wanting to demand that, we, that particular kind of voices get listened to. And sometimes egalitarian free speech is used as a demand that people be heard and listened to. Well, no one has a right to be listened to. You have a right to speak, um, but you have to invite people to, to listen to you. And to do that, you have to make what you're saying compellingly interesting. Um, so uh, that, that's just a, a few thoughts on free free speech. But as I say, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I've not 
had a sort of lifelong interest in free speech. And the more, although I've taken an interest, obviously, for obvious reasons in the last few months, um, I think of it as a somewhat minimalist concept, a kind of springboard concept, what I might also call an OK lines concept, a decent society guarantees freedom of speech, um, but a really good society uh, builds a social climate including a campus social climate in which people can have really uplifting conversations in which their curiosities are stoked, their curiosities are shared, they're able to have conversations that might take their lives in a really good, uh, good direction. Okay, so pause for breath and let me just very quickly tell you a tiny bit of potted biography and I'll try not to go into kind of morose self-justification self-justificatory self-pitying mode but just in case you know nothing about what particularly happened to me this past year it was nothing very very spectacular but somehow it did make the news in about 30 different news outlets which took re me really by surprise um, and as I say I'd had 35 pretty quiet years without any kind of trouble at university and suddenly out of the blue this happened um, but many of you will know that these stories are not at all rare nowadays and this, this similar things seem to be happening to a lot of people in academia, but also in the media and uh, in various walks of life. So none of us should be surprised if suddenly we find ourselves the target of a mini hate mob. Hate mob. And I think it probably was a fairly small hate, uh, hate mob. Um, it was clearly a hate mob. It was clearly organized. There were maybe five, 10, 15 people, nearly all of them anonymous, all of them undoubtedly strangers to me because for a year and a half, I'd been teaching online courses with several hundred students, but only online, not face to face. Um, and they decided that I was for whatever reason, a target, a legitimate target for um, very sudden flurry of denunciations. And I mentioned that some of the, the fairly standard names they called me. What was I think distinctive about my denunciation the denunciations of me arguably was that it wasn't any one thing. There wasn't any one bad moment, one bad tweet or one bad thing that I stood for that people disapproved of. It was kind of once people had got the bit between their teeth, they decided to really go for everything that I had said on Twitter or in my feedback on, uh, on essays. And I don't think they found any one smoking gun, any one really bad thing, but most people would think, well, there's no smoke without fire. If somebody gets denounced by a significant number of people with all those different labels, not just about race, he's also accused of being a misogynist and a transphobe and a bigot and a men's rights activist, all kinds of stuff. He doesn't sound like a very nice guy. So I would ask you, what are you uh, what are you doing here listening to, <laughs> to somebody who, who is as awful as portrayed as, uh, as that? And I have asked myself the same question. What, what am I doing trying to, to lecture if I really am as awful as all those labels suggest? For me, and this is the self-justificatory bit, if you like, it proves that literally anybody, even somebody who I you think I'm is there a pretty good person, done what I could to do good in the world um, and will still want to do what I can to do good in the world. And I also think I'm pretty decent and never judgmental, never aggressive or antagonistic or particularly biased as a lecturer. But um, somehow it happened to me. So I think it can happen to, to anyone. So here's, you know, let me just read out one example of one of the tweets that got me labeled as such. I, why did I get labeled as a transphobe? All right, well, lots of people get labeled as transphobes. You'll have probably have seen um, a, a lots of denunciations of supposedly transphobic people in the media, most famously of all, JK Rowling. What got me that denounced was I, I tweeted in JK Rowling's defense and I tweeted this, how can it be controversial to argue for sex-based rights and for open debate on complex moral issues? That was screenshotted and posted as evidence that I was a transphobe. Why was I a misogynist? Well, you may remember in the um, aftermath of Sarah Everard's murder back in uh, March, um, there was a lot of debate about women's public safety. Now, I know a few things about public safety because I've recently done a project about safe 
places and walking and mobility in the urban environment. And one of the things that I know is that places are safer generally, the more people walk around them. It's good to have lots of people out in public. And so when somebody in the House of Lords proposed the idea that, oh, well, it's all men who are the, the aggressors, so we should we should put a curfew on men from 6 p.m. onwards every evening. And she really wasn't joking. She you know, it was clarified after she didn't she didn't mean it as a joke. And she was in the House of Lords, so it was it was meant uh, seriously, or at least sort of rhetorically seriously. So I'd simply sort of commented this was not a practical idea, and actually we needed to find ways to live well together, both in private and in public, and that curfews were not the answer. That got me labelled as a as a misogynist. Um, so I suppose the lesson I won't go into all the examples. You can ask me about any ones, any others that you like. But um, the lesson from that is if if someone has joined a network or a gang that has the mindset that they want to cancel somebody, that someone's got that into themselves, into that denunciatory frame of mind. Literally anything will give you the self-justification that you need to pinpoint the finger and say that person needs to be cancelled. That person is ripe for denunciation. That person doesn't deserve to be in a university. Um, and so denunciatory zeal, it's not directly a form of censorship. But if enough people join in, it actually acts as a form of censorship. So what happened to me was I wasn't directly censored. There is still no gagging order on me. I haven't been stopped from lecturing, but I was suspended while there was an investigation. And yet the students who joined in the denunciatory gang were never investigated um, and they won't be. Um, so they're kind of one sided responses from universities. I've learned from lots of other universities that this kind of response is par for the course. The person who has the finger of suspicion pointed at, uh, if you have the finger of suspicion pointed at, at you, you are, you are going to be investigated. And in some universities, this goes on for months and months. I got lucky. Edinburgh closed the investigation after two months, completely exonerated me, but did not take not make any effort to make good my name, to repair the social damage, um, or to bring the students into a conversation who had joined in those denunciations. And I find that extraordinary, puzzling, disappointing, and I will spend the coming year putting a big effort into trying to um, I, I try to address that problem. Um, and that's one reason why, although I'm talking to you tonight, I will not even online lecture at the University of Edinburgh in this current academic year. I cannot do that while a, while a denunciation of such a scale has not been addressed. And of course, in Edinburgh University, I don't want to slag off my own university, but there was a really awful precedent, much, much worse than the denunciation of me, which was um, the, uh, the attempt by Students' Union and by some members of the Trade Union to cancel our rector, Anne Henderson, for that single thing that I also got cancelled for, for supporting JK Rowling and the campaign for um, protection of women's sex-based uh, sex rights. And she had an awful time when she was rector, wasn't, wasn't really effectively able to function as rector, and she's written about it uh, in public since she finally um, I, um, uh, reached the end of her, her, her spell as, uh, as rector. So, that's probably all I want to say on the uh, on, on the um, cancellations. Um, uh, just that ostensibly I wasn't actively censored, but people, if, if enough people are censorious, somebody, I, somebody. Oh, sorry, I, I just got a bleep there saying somebody made a comment. We'll, we'll address that later. Um, so, moral curiosity. Um, the two things I think we might mean by moral curiosity um, as, a, as an antidote to this culture of denunciation, the culture of suspicion, the culture of censoriousness. Um, two meanings. One is being curious about moral issues. There's an awful lot written in philosophy and psychology and in educational science about the fundamental importance of curiosity as an intrinsic value, as part of the good life and also as part of the good academic community. 
Most of it focuses on what's generally called epistemic curiosity, and that was being curi curious to gain new knowledge. Um, but I think it, the concept of curiosity can really usefully be extended to cover moral issues. And I think there's a second sense that is overlaps with that and is related, uh, second sense of moral curiosity, which is the idea that curiosity is itself a moral good. To be curious uh, is to be motivated to engage with an open mind, with an open heart, uh, in listening, uh, in conversation to other people, empathizing with their perspective, listening to their views, including trying to do so on moral issues. If you do that, uh, your curiosity is morally good in that it's good for you, but it's also good for society. And within a university, it's um, a, 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 a crucial part of the campus social climate. We cannot have a good functioning academic community without curiosity. And that curiosity should extend to issues of moral debate, even issues about which people feel very deeply, feel that they have uh, the, uh, the, the, the strongest, strongest right to offer an opinion. Nobody should try to quell that curiosity to debate moral issues in open-minded ways, to engage in thought experiments, to ask awkward, disruptive questions of moral dogmas and so on. Um, so uh, that's why I want to raise the issue of moral uh, curiosity with, with you. Now, somewhere here, if I can find in my notes, I've got a quote that I came across just last week. Yes, uh, which is on the subject of curiosity in education that I think applies equally well to moral curiosity. It's from a, somebody called, a, a, an American academic called John Tomasi, um, who has taken over leadership of what's called the Heterodox Academy. Now, this is a, an international network of scholars, of which I'm a member, which exists to promote viewpoint diversity in universities around the world as an antidote to the upsurge in uh, censorious dogma. And his quote as in his inaugural uh, think piece for the Heterodox Academy goes like, uh, goes like this. To wonder, not only for ourselves, but also about ourselves and the different ways our lives might go, that gives our concern for social justice its point. As with truth, so with justice, curiosity comes first. If there's a single value the university must hold sacred, I submit it is curiosity. That, I believe, is a really, really important quote, and I suspect it will be quoted for many years to come. And the reason perhaps why it's so important particularly is that he uses curiosity as a concept uh, on which we can find common ground in volatile inflammatory debates about whether universities are about the pursuit of truth or whether they're about the pursuit of social justice. Now, I've tried to work for both the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of social justice, all of my 35 years in universities, and for many years before that, working with trade unions and community-based organizations and NGOs and so on. Um, and I've always felt, I think, that to, uh, to, to, to make social progress happen, we need to be open to the truth, receptive to evidence, and we need to have our hearts um, in favour of social justice. And so that, I think, brings us back to that point I started with about, a, um, uh, about freedom uh, uh, of expression being both about that will to make everybody's voices hearable, to, to allow everybody a voice, and about that freedom to say things that might offend if you're being um, constructively disruptive, if you're giving offence for some kind of social purpose, to me, it's absolutely fine to give offence. We should never be afraid of giving offence if in trying to do so, we have some purpose other than self-aggrandizing. If we have a social purpose, a good, clear moral purpose, a clear sense of why we're doing it, we should always be prepared to give offence. So let me just quickly close then, just to say, just to, just to trot out some of the things that I think I was trying to do that somehow, without me meaning it to happen, ended up leading to my cancellation. So, for example, I questioned uh, whether um, people who call themselves anti-racists can really be anti-racists if they overtly racialize everyone and everything on campus. 
If they segregate BAME from white students in learning events, that seems to me to be a kind of racist approach to anti-racism that we should question. Then came in Edinburgh the denaming of the David Hume Tower, and I questioned publicly, very publicly, unlike nearly all of my colleagues, only a handful of us questioned publicly the denaming of the David Hume Tower. And we did so because we felt it was a conversation that we should have openly and in public about whether or not taking it a name off the David Hume Tower was a good moral thing to do or was it a piece of shameless tokenism. I questioned also whether universities are wise to confess publicly to institutional racism or whether rather than institutional racism, we better approach social inequalities in a more nuanced sense, looking for evidence of particular sources of inequality, particular sources of segregation and harm, rather than using a bland, overgeneralized concept like that. I questioned also whether USA-style race politics and the language of critical race theory, with which I have much sympathy, by the way, but sometimes it's just pushed too far and it's pushed in very divisive ways. And above all, it is pushed without a clear constructive moral purpose. So the way I question critical race theory is to say, OK, if you're going to push critical race theory, please have some kind of aspirational link to a, to a post-racial world, a, ra a world of racial harmony, a, wor a world of racial progress, rather than just using it as um, as a, a platform from which to throw out lots of complaints. Regarding women's safety, I already mentioned why I questioned uh, some people's theories about how to improve women's safety in public. Um, regarding transphobia, I think we, gender critical feminists and transgender activists have clearly reached an impasse that has been there for several years and has cost people their lives. It's been traumatic. We need to use questions kindly questioning, constructive questioning, as ways to find to, to fight through that impasse. There's a couple of other things that I might have been um, a, um, a challenged on that I, to, to my knowledge, I, I wasn't. For example, I repeatedly questioned on Twitter, I questioned whether gen male genital mutilation is a kindly thing to do. Is it wise? Is it good to um, inflict lifelong damage on baby boys' penises? I'm not shy to ask that question. It seems to be a crucial, important moral question to ask, even though some people are deeply uncomfortable about that question being asked. I've also asked of universities, finally, repeatedly, I've asked questions on whether it makes sense to, to make grandiose declarations about equalities, about rights. Um, if, I, if, if those claims have any credibility, um, I've asked, um, when senior political figures from countries like China and Saudi Arabia are, without critical questioning, invited to donate large sums of money to UK universities and are rewarded by being given honorary degrees and by having their names slapped up in buildings. Um, if we're going to do, do equalities and rights seriously, we need to look at contemporary uh, present day uh, harms and injustices. And so asking questions about those seems to me to be absolutely crucial in a well-functioning uh, and morally curious university. So to finish on that, I will go on questioning. I haven't been silenced. I probably will self-censor. We all do to some extent. I'm going to pick my fights. I don't want another round of denunciations, but there is a significant risk of them happening again in the current, current year, and I'm, I'm ready for that. Um, but I feel compelled to carry on being morally curious and posing questions where I think those questions have a moral purpose that society can benefit from. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for that. Let me just, there we go. Um, that was a, a lovely talk, very interesting, really. Um, we have a question from the audience. Uh, it's quite a long one. Um, I find your early suggestion that anyone who is concerned about free speech should consider practical means of promoting free speech or dialogue in society. I think that university societies doing this is one good means of doing so. Despite this, the trends, the trends in university systems as it stands is towards a fairly clear set of dogmas, at least as it appears to me. 
perhaps you could view this differently. Do you believe that the university as an academic institution is doomed to neglect free speech and debate? Is it necessary for new different forms of high level academic institutions which can counter the current university system and be bastions of liberty in a seemingly liber illiberal age, just as the first universities of the medieval ages were? So, yeah, um, so I think I got most of that and thank you very much for that. <laughs> That's, these are exactly the kind of issues that are going to be energizing me for the current year. I mean, I, I, um, I'm very keen that I, in my university and other people in similar positions in other universities, take this moment of, you know, upsurge of cancel culture uh, as a kind of um, watershed, if you like, a moment when we reflect on what universities are for. And of course, there's lots of other ways in which we're asking what universities are for right this now. So one of the things that I've proposed to my university, Edinburgh, is that while I'm not lecturing, I'll spend the year going around the university, talking to a huge variety of people in different disciplines, people of different culture, people from different political persuasions, people from different disciplines, and seeing what I think they believe we can do in a university to foster curiosity, both as a um, as a pedagogical tool, in other words, to use questions and questioning better in classes to ensure that our courses are not dogmatic, are not treating learners as passive learners, but treating them as active learners, but also to foster curiosity as a kind of intrinsic value. Part of the enjoyment of being at university, part of the enjoyment of living well is to stay curious. I think we can all of us intuit that but it's not clear that we are doing as much as we might be. So just to give some very simple examples, uh, and you might recognize this in your own curricula, some curricula leave a lot of space for people to carve out their own pathway through a course, to develop their own questions, to do group work, to follow up their own interests. Others, on the other hand, are very structured. Each week has a topic. Each week um, announces or tells you the answers to a topic. And at the end of the course, you have preset questions that you have to answer or in, either as essay questions or in exams. I think a course which nurtures curiosity starts with questions, uses questions all the way through and responds well to new questions that emerge from students and also encourages students to work with one another in pairs and small groups throughout the course, both during the class, but also between classes, to use questions to, um, uh, to, to generate shared curiosity. So I'm working, I've used, I'm using that concept of shared moral curiosity as a concept in the university, and I'm hoping by the end of the year to come up with some guidance documents and maybe publications uh, on it. That will be my little, uh, sort of contribution back to society, if you, uh, if you like, because I do think that free speech and freedom of thought uh, and freedom of expression generally, academic freedom too, rely on people's ability to develop good questions. Another concept I use is questionological intelligence or questionological capability, the ability to use questions well and to respond well to other people's questions. Um, so I've given you a mini lecture in response to your questions. <laughs> uh, is that does that roughly answer the kinds of things that you wanted to raise there? Yeah, no, I think so. I thought that was quite a detailed one. Actually, the the question itself was was a very in depth one. I was like, oh wow. <laughs> um, so I've got a question it mostly sort of comes from me personally actually and it's it's about the situation at the University of Sussex with Professor Kathleen Stock and my questions in relation to that and I'm just wondering how do you think universities should balance freedom of expression versus student welfare and happiness so obviously a big issue of this is there are students who feel like their welfare and their mental happiness and such are um, are under threat by what Professor Stock has said and published. Um, but on the flip side, um, 
you have freedom of expression and of course she's bringing up some incredibly fascinating and interesting points so how do you think a university should step in to maintain a balance between the two so uh, i as i mentioned happiness is is what i've been working on for many years uh, and i work across many disciplines in this and i'm not a kind of life coach and i can't i don't have a magic wand for happiness but i have a very strong interest in helping people talk through happiness better so if i'm confronted with a situation where students are unhappy and i've been a personal tutor for literally thousands of students over the last few decades and so i've seen a lot of very very unhappy people including people unhappy about things that happen in their classes so of course we must respond we must take serious we must not dismiss those complaints as kind of vexatious activism. We absolutely, and I'm sure Kathleen Stock would say exactly the same. We must take student unhappiness seriously. We must take the activism, of, uh, the, the, the unhappiness, and the, uh, we, we must take people seriously if they claim to be traumatized. Um, now, as a happiness researcher, uh, I and my colleagues have come up with a really, really simple formula for helping people start a discussion about roots to happiness from unhappiness and it's basically goes it's idiotically simple it goes like this three roots to happiness you can change your mind in other words learn to think differently about something you can change your world which means change things in your environment change change your relationships uh, change you know change aspects uh, of your of your surroundings or you can leave you can go away and find your happiness elsewhere. Um, now, obviously, a university would hope people will not leave and run away. Um, I, I do think there is a bottom line for people at university. If you're going to be at university, that we should be asking people. In fact, one of the things that's been discussed is trigger warnings. Should we have trigger warnings at the start of classes? Personally, I think we should have a trigger warning at the start of every person's university career. While you're at university, you are likely to be triggered by some complex moral issues that upset you at some point. You are likely to be triggered by reading things that you don't like. Um, if you respond uh, constructively and calmly to those triggering moments, you'll be a better lear learner. So I do think we have a moral responsibility to help students cope with upset without kind of claiming a right not to be offended, a right not to be upset. So to go back to the example of the David Hume, and it's very difficult to say, to Hume Tower in Edinburgh, and it's very difficult to say this without seeming uncaring. If you are, the, the, the name was taken off the David Hume Tower ostensibly because the principal said, if I hear one student saying they are traumatized by seeing David Hume's name on the tower, I must take his name off the tower. That was a quote from our principal. And that seems to me to be to 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 miss entirely misunderstand um, uh, the, the the moral obligation to lead students to a better life. If somebody is traumatized by seeing the name of a 17th century philosopher um, on the an 18th century philosopher on the name of a tower, then we have a duty to help them change their minds about that. Rethink it. Think better about what's happened, about why it is the object. You can also change your relationships so they can, for example, in the case of the Sussex students, if they're traumatized by things she said. Now, I'm not an expert in Kathleen Stock. I have publicly stood by her because I, from what I've read of her work and what I've seen of the attacks on her, the attacks are despicable and I have not seen anything despicable that she has, that she has said. That doesn't mean to say that there's nothing she said that I wouldn't object to. Quite possibly there is. I don't know. but. It seems to me um, extremely important that people consider if they are upset by things she, she has said, they have a moral duty as students to ask her. Now, they may say that they're scared. They're so scared of her. And, and weirdly, I mean, I hope I'd be interested to, to, in your feedback on this. Do I seem scary to you? Because one thing that I heard an awful lot uh, after I was cancelled I asked time and again, why, why, please, why have these students who are all anonymous, they're all strangers to me, who've called me every name under the sun, who clearly have worked themselves into a, 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 a hatred of me, why didn't they think to ask me? 
What are your views on critical race theory? What are your views on transgender activism? What are your views on women's safety? If they'd asked me, we would have had a polite conversation. We might have had some disagreements, but quite likely we would have found 99% common ground. And quite likely, if reasonable people ask Kathleen Stock for her views, she'll say, well, look, I'm here to, uh, as a philosopher to defend women's sex-based rights. That seemed to be ground that it's worth defending. But absolutely, I don't think she would say that she's there to make uh, transgender people's lives miserable or to deny their feelings or to not deny the reality of their experiences. And if they just asked her, they would have a conversation. It seems terribly simple, but uh, we need to find a way of persuading students that if, if something's going bad in their minds, if they really are traumatized, they can try and sort it out in their heads, but they can talk to people. If you're too scared to talk to a lecturer or to somebody who's upset you, talk to somebody else, talk to your personal tutor. And in, in, in my case in Edinburgh, I have no evidence that any of the people who publicly denounced me, who tried to make my life a misery and who have ended my career effectively. I mean, I, I will soldier on for a while, but it's the end of my career, really. Um, certainly the career that I had. Uh, they have done that. They have achieved that. And they did that without ever, ever pausing to ask me a question. And to my knowledge, without even asking one of my colleagues to ask me to explain myself. That seems to me to be below the belt, dangerous and not good for them and not good for me. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry if you wanted me to be more specific about the trans, about the gender debates. I, I, I'm sorry, but I'm not an expert. I do have, I, I do have <laughs> views. That I, I try to, I try to stand up for what's right, and I have often yeah. tweeted and argued in favour of sex-based rights because I think they're worth, they, they are worth protecting. But I also have tweeted and argued in many cases in favour of finding kinder ways to include. Uh, Trans, uh, transgender and uh, gender non-conforming people in whatever way we possibly can, provided they don't trample on women's sex-based rights. Yeah, no, um, I think the answer was actually pretty much um, perfect in terms of the way we were sort of looking at it. Um, I don't think we're wanting to quite go down the, the gender um, theories and transgender conversations because they can get really complicated and it gets a lot of people really quite upset and worked up. We might consider doing something in the future examining it but for now we just we, we figured it's probably much easier to keep back so that's one of the most controversial and um, topic areas really for anyone to talk about but I will pass you over to Andre who I think has got even more um, questions for you. Yes, that is uh, true. Uh, we have um, quite a few questions actually coming in from the audience, uh, which is delightful to see. Thank you very much. Um, we are unfortunately not going to get to every single one of them, but I think there's a very important one um, which we had also thought about. So there's uh, um, someone that says students often watch people they actually agree with get cancelled for fear of facing the same unfair repercussions. What do you think is the best way to break this cycle and get these people to come out of the woodwork? And I would add um, a small clause to this um, because we are talking to you and we are, of course, I would assume most of us at university, there's staff or students. Um, how, if we are a student and we see, um, you know, a bunch of, of classmates um, complaining about a student lecture, and we actually think, wait, actually, I don't agree with them and I don't want to see my lecture cancelled. Um, what should they do in terms of, um, you know, protecting that lecture and, and um, stopping the cancelling attempt? Well, uh, so I have one very strong answer and I have another slightly different answer. So the strong answer is this, and it's based on my personal experience. And I can, I, I'm probably going to barely be able to say this without weeping, but I'll try not to be embarrass you. One of the things that I thought was really, really beautiful in the in the days and weeks following my cancellation was a lot of undergraduates 
who, like the denouncers, were strangers to me. They were just, you know, they had attended my online lectures. They're mainly strangers to me, got in touch and offered just quiet messages of support. So that's step one. Get in touch with the person. And most people are contactable. Just say that you've noticed and say that you care. It's, it means the world. It, you know, I, I actually do think it pretty much saved my life at that time. Uh, having you know kindly strangers get in touch. Now, some of them went a step further, and this is the strong answer, and this is what I would love to see those of you who are brave enough to do this. Don't be a bystander. If you can afford to take that risk, if you don't think that you're in a place of extreme vulnerability yourself, I mean, I'm not advocating people taking stupid risks, but please, if enough people don't just turn a blind eye and, and think, oh, well, it's okay. I don't really know whether he did anything wrong, so I won't, I won't say anything. If you see somebody being denounced and you think the denunciation from what you can see looks unfair, please just say so and say so if you can in public. If enough people do that, it doesn't have to be in a, in a kind of let, a signed list of letters of complaint. It can be in a tweet, it can be on social media, um, or it could be in a class, but please say it loud and clear. And if enough people do that, others will join you. And if you're afraid to do it on your own, get together with a small bunch of friends and say it, say it together. Um, I, so I, I do think, I think we are already in the UK beginning to see, we've, we've, had, we've had longer warning. In, 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 the U, in the USA, they've had cancel culture for five, 10 years now, really, really badly. It's only very recent in the UK and we had some warning. So we are already seeing the fight back. And I do think we'll see in the next couple of years enough of a fight back for it not to be so bad anymore. But it won't happen if there's bystanders. And at risk of saying something that seems accusatory about my colleagues, the converse to those nice students and those nice colleagues who got in touch and some of whom stood up and wrote letters to the principal or tweeted or said stuff in public in my defense. The really, really shocking thing for me, and I'll say this hand and heart because I, you know, I don't want to denounce any particular person for doing this, but in anthropology, colleagues who should have been my friends, um, who know me perfectly well, who knew I was not guilty of those things for which I was accused, did not come out and say, we've seen what's happening to Neil, we don't think it's right. And that has really shocked me. Now, a very small number have privately been in touch and to them, I thank, thank them from the bottom of my heart, but there was no significant, let alone collective response from my home discipline. And that really, I still utterly shocked and baffled by that. But I have spoken to scores of academics who have been targets of denunciations in other universities. The story is every single time exactly the same. They're, they're shocked by the lack of support from the media, their immediate colleagues. Why? The answer time and again is their immediate colleagues are scared. It's not usually that they think that they're bad people or that they justify it to themselves thinking, oh, they must have said or done something wrong. It's just that they're scared because they see what's happened to a colleague. They think I'm going to be next. And that, I think, is uh, a shows a really significant and really morally reprehensible failure of moral uh, responsibility. We need to do, we need to spread the word in that and, and not shame individuals, because I don't blame any one individual, but I do think collectively, my colleagues had a responsibility to say something, they did not take that responsibility seriously. And uh, it's very hard for me to find a way back into my home department after that's happened. And that's been the case time and again with other cancel culture events in academia and in workplaces outside of academia. It's very sad. So I've got another wee question for you. Um, it might have already been partially answered through your talk, but the question, the person is wondering, how do we achieve a greater acceptance of differing opinions in the university classroom? What would be your tips, tricks and ideas for increasing acceptance for varying opinions? So at my home discipline, anthropology, which I've just come close to slagging off, um, 
is still very dear to my heart because its core principle uh, that uh, is some um, is moral curiosity. It's being curious about the diversity of cultures and the diversity of values. And we have a principle called moral uh, called cultural relativism, which is that you withhold judgment for as long as you can in order to try and put yourself in other people's shoes, particularly people's the shoes of people who have a different worldview to you. And that same principle, I think, will be a very good principle to apply in every walk of life. Um, the principle of relativism, provided provided you don't use it as an excuse for not evaluating, for not eventually coming to a moral point of view. Um, and so, um, uh, so my answer on that one is, for example, in class, we should embrace uh, viewpoint diversity as as a, as a value for any good class that tries to address contemporary or past. Moral, uh, moral issues. Um, uh, we should embrace viewpoint diversity and we should uh, encourage in that class to the, the airing of a range of views. We should encourage thought experiments. We should encourage debates where, for example, people adopt a position that they don't necessarily hold. We should encourage one other technique that I think is sometimes used, and I know this is a tradition in debating societies, is to say to somebody, right, you talk to somebody else about your views or something, share your views and where there's a difference opinion, the one who holds the opposite opinion should should express the, the opinion of the other person, right? So that you learn how to articulate and try to make sense of views that you, you absolutely yourself disapprove of. Um, now that doesn't mean, for example, if you're debating climate change, that every discussion on climate change has to include you know, respect for total climate denial. Um, but it, it, it does include looking at the, a reasonable variety of moral viewpoints. Now, it's anybody's guess what is the reasonable variety, you know, and so the, the, there's no rule for how you would get there. But it seems to be a good principle, the principle of viewpoint diversity and the principle of uh, cultivating enough mental uh, flexibility and conversational flexibility to try out the ideas of other people that you do not yourself hold. I don't know if that helps. And I, I think the techniques that you can use in classes to, to, you know, you can you can ask students to develop questions, you can have debates within class, um, you can set essays that are kind of debate essays for which there is no obvious right answer, that kind of thing. Uh, that was um, a great answer. And um, I think we might leave it there because it's past eight. Um, I'm just noticing, I don't know how many questions you've got, but I just opened the chat. There's one, I'm, I may have missed missing others. There's one from Kirsty Miller about social justice versus critical social justice. Mm -hmm. Can I just if, if, yeah, yeah. If, you, if, if you're willing so, to answer that, yeah. So social justice, I, I work, social justice was the biggest concept I worked with in my international development career from early 80s through to the early noughties. Um, and I thought it was the thing that mattered most in the world. I've changed my view on that because I think well-being is what mattered. And I think uh, it's really important to discuss fairness in the world, but so long as your pursuit of fairness doesn't trump well-being, so long as you remember that uh, social justice has no value without well-being being the end goal. Social justice has no value without happiness or human flourishing being the thing you're trying to optimize. If social justice means arguing, means bl blaming, means means um, leveling down, then you're on then you're onto a losing streak. You're going to cause damage. And of course, we know plenty of examples of regimes that have pursued social justice ostensibly to to the to the detriment of society, to the impoverishment of society. Um, so that's a general view on social justice. Does critical social justice have a different meaning? Well, I can't give a quick answer to that, but I can recommend somebody who can, uh, who, who will provide some answers. There's, there's one of um, there's a trio of academics who did the so-called SoCal squared hoax. It wasn't actually a hoax. It was basically produced a series of um, kind of caricature um, critical social justice articles. They called it the Grievance Studies event. One of those is called Helen Pluckrose, who set up recently an organization called Counterweight, 
So if you look up Helen Pluckrose, who's a British philosopher uh, and counterweight, um, I've joined with her and a number of other academics have joined with her in a kind of mission to question in constructive ways critical social justice when it becomes harmful. And, they, and I have nothing like critical race theory and critical gender studies. And I have no principled objection other than that I don't think these the people with that kind of missionary zeal should feel that they are entitled to trump other values like freedom of speech, like well-being, um, like positive social quality. So um, if you want to look at people who are critical of critical social justice, look at Helen uh, Pluckrose's counterweight website, because this there's going to be a, a really useful site for um, uh, a variety of viewpoints. Another uh, site, if you don't already read it, ARIO magazine, A-R-E-O magazine, uh, online, free online, is another really good site for simple articles. Uh, unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D, is another site for, for articles that are critical of critical social justice movements. And I think they're all critical in constructive ways. They're not playing silly polemics. They're being critical in constructive ways. So I hope that helps. Um, can I? So this is uh, it's getting um, late and I don't want to keep you for for too long. Um, do you want to um, just give a, a final statement as a sort of send off? So a final uh, send off. First of all, thank you from from the bottom of my heart for asking from asking me. I mean, I'm academically almost a nobody. I'm not an expert in free speech. Um, I, I've been thrown in the deep end in the last few months and I'm trying to pick up the pieces and this has been a really interesting stepping stone for me. Just in case it interests you, I've also been asked by the University of Dundee's Equality and Diversity Committee to come and speak to them. And I think that's going to happen and it's not happening until the spring. But if you're interested in that, keep an eye out for that. Um, I, I'll maybe share, maybe Andre, if I share with you a post when it's mm. known when that event is happening. But I, I thought that was a really healthy sign that both the Free Speech Society and the Equality and Diversity Society asked me in the same week. Um, and if you know of others at other universities that might like to hear some of the things that I have to, to, to say, do please let them know because it certainly helps me be give a chance to discuss these things and to talk through constructive responses to what has been a really rough few months. So thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, before wrapping it up, I just wanted to uh, mention a, a small um, thing we've we've been asked. Um, we there's a, a campaign that has been created, um, not so recently actually, quite quite some time ago, um, and I think you, Dr. Finn, are involved in the Don't Divide Us campaign. Yes. Mm -hmm. I was about uh, to, in addition to Unheard and Counterweight, Don't Divide Us is another very good organisation. On, on kind of finding constructive responses to excessively uh, intolerant forms of social mm. justice um, mm. activism. Mm. Uh, for, for those of you who don't know, I'll just briefly explain what it is. Um, this campaign aims to sort of dissuade universities all over the UK from uh, joining the Race Equality Charter, which uh, is something created by um, uh, an organization called Advanced, Advanced AG. And the Race Equality Charter is supposed to provide a framework through which institution work to um, identify and self-reflect -re on institutional and cultural barriers standing in the way of Black, Asian and minority ethnic, ethnic staff and students. Uh, so although the uh, Don't Divide Us campaign uh, considers this a double endeavor, um, the, it, it thinks that the, the, the ways uh, through which the Race Equality Charter aims to achieve this are not um, strictly correct and are very controversial. Uh, so they include ideas like either critical race theory that uh, Dr. Finn mentioned, microaggressions, intersectionality and several things. And so 
don't divide us is focused on um, sort of dissuading universities from doing that because it thinks that by adopting such a, um, a framework towards racism, we're going to only achieve uh, um, a larger divide between people of different origins and that's um, that's not ideal at all. Um, so yeah, they, they have a website so you can check it out. We are uh, possibly planning at some point some kind of event related to them uh, and with the university as well, which is going to be really exciting. Uh, but having said that, I um, want to uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Thin, for uh, doing this talk. It, it uh, means a lot. Uh, we like to have interesting people uh, talking about interesting and uh, interesting topics and you're a very interesting person and your talk was really, really fascinating. So thank you very much. Um, we wish you the best of luck uh, for the future, uh, a future that will hopefully be full of interesting conversations with people with wildly different opinions. Uh, that's all we want. Um, and thank you to you people in the audience for watching and sending in the questions. Uh, you, we hope you have found this event interesting and that we've encouraged you to speak your mind and have interesting conversations with those around you. Um, there's plenty happening in the Free Speech Society this year. Next week we are going to the pub for our first in-person meeting as a society, um, which everyone's welcome to attend. Whether you've watched all our events or this is your first, you'll be very welcome. There's no official business to the meeting just to get to know each other a little, a little better. In two weeks we have um, the second lecture of our series The Other Side, uh, which is an initiative that aims to break some barriers and heal the considerable divide that currently exists in the world between supporters of different sides of controversial issues. And the topic of that lecture is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And in three weeks we are hopefully going to host our first in-person event with the University of Dundee's very own Jen Fenton, who is a social work lecturer and uh, who is going to be talking about freedom of expression in the university classroom. Uh, and there will be much more happening in the society to be revealed as time progresses. Um, and just to end things off, uh, I would like to finish with a, a quote, as I often do. Uh, and I had the name of this person. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Um, his name is a Anthony Boyden Bourdon. I don't know if it's French or not. Uh, it's a, uh, an American celebrity. Um, and I, I, at first I didn't think he's not going to say something particularly wise, uh, but he said something very simple, but, but that's um, really, really deep. He said, I don't have to agree with you to like, like you or respect you. So um, please stop uh, mixing up uh, agreement and respect. Those are two very different things. Um, Please respect everyone around you, but also disagree with them because that's where interesting, that's how interesting conversations start. Um, so thank you very much everyone for um, attending. It was a pleasure uh, to host you tonight and I hope you have a great night. Bye. Bye. That was a lovely quote to finish with. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>